It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This podcast contains explicit language. Oh my God, is this mic stand still wobbly? (laughs) How do we not have a a wrench? Still. So that happened. This week, we examine the implications of President Obama's nuclear deal with Iran, which has just secured its political survival in the Senate. Also, Congress is coming back to town after the long August recess, which means the government is probably about to shut down. We also talked to Cabinet Secretary Tom Vilsack about problems facing the school lunch program, which is critical for poor kids around the country. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is still running for president, and Hillary Clinton has an incredibly stupid email scandal on her hands. Here's what happened first. Whoo, what a week, guys. Uh, I'm Zach Carter. Today I'm joined by... Igor Bobic And? Arthur Delaney. And what do you guys do? We're reporters at the Huffington Post. Happily. Aren't you kind of an editor, though, Igor? I am. I straddle some things. You're jack of all trades. Yes. Expert of all things. Uh, well, I want to start this week um, with the, the uh, perennial bullshit of 2016. Uh, there was some really great 2016 BS this week. I Please thought. don't swear. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to cut back. Arthur's mad at my potty mouth. Um, I, I, the, the Clinton email scandal, it seems like it never goes away. Parts of it, I think, are, I think there's some real substance to it. Uh, but the parts that I'm most interesting, interested in are just the absolute silly nonsense parts. I agree with the latter statement, but I, I would just like to say that I think it's a legitimate scandal. Yeah, yes. I agree. No, no, nothing really controversial has come out of it, but just the fact that she did the private email, I, I it's so weird and dumb and, and bad. It reflects, I think, I really, even if there's nothing criminal in it, I think some pretty poor judgments. Strange, but, but bizarre. Continually. I mean, she could have made it a lot easier on herself and released some of this stuff way earlier. Um, the way she's been talking about it has just been uh, unbelievable as well. Uh, her arrogance just completely comes out in some of these interviews. <laughs> well, I just wanted one device. And she didn't. The email say, sent from my iPad, sent from my phone. It's clear there were multiple devices. No, she's not right. fooling anybody, but at this point, she's, she's stuck to that story for so long that, that she's, she's sort of stuck with it. She can't go back and she's say, made her bed. actually, yeah, I, I did this for the yeah, obvious I agree, reason. I agree which with was to Igor. Avoid she, she's doing the classic step on a rake, slip on a banana peel, <laughs> step on another rake. <laughs> just stop it. The question is, if at the end of this this series of cartoon disasters, she falls off a cliff like Wile E. Coyote, or watches like her friend run into a mouse trap and die. Well, she'll walk <laughs> off, she'll walk off the cliff, but be suspended by thin air momentarily. Actually, so she has a, a moment of realization and then falls. She will be walking next to a cliff, and uh, Joe Biden will come out of nowhere and just push her off. <laughs> <laughs> He's getting ready. Uh, so the, the Clinton email scandal, so all, all the judgment, uh, the, the potential legal troubles, uh, that, that aside, I I just loved the stupid, frivolous crap the most. Um, yes. my, my favorite was this email that came out. So they're being released sort of every month until December. There's a new trove of emails that come out. Um, 
And some of them are just so silly and dumb. Lanny Davis, who is this sort of lifelong uh, Clinton confidant defender during the, uh, the the scandals of the 90s, who since has gone to work for various uh, nefarious dictators. <laughs> um, he has this killer, like, three or four-page email where he's asking her to please, please, please uh, talk to... I think it's American Lawyer Magazine who's doing a profile on him and and say something nice about him. Just say that he's really great. And I just want to quote from it. It's like three pages long, but at one point he says, quote, please, please, please note there are three pleases. Do not be bashful or concerned about saying no to my request. (laughs) And he goes on a couple sentences later. The honest to goodness truth is, aside from Carolyn, my four children, and my immediate family, I consider you to be the best friend and the best person I have met in my long life. (laughs) So good. You know, Lenny Davis, he goes on the Sunday talk shows to defend the Clintons. And and, uh, a couple months ago, he was on Fox News and Chris Wallace was like, Lenny, don't you get sick of this? <laughs> don't you get sick of doing this for the Clintons? And Lenny was like, no. I mean, I, I, I'll be honest, I never read the American Lawyer profile of Lenny Davis because I we don't should, care. We should find it. We should. We should. Yeah. I, I, I wonder if he got the quote. Maybe it works. Maybe maybe doing all of this flactum leads to him getting nice profiles in American Lawyer magazine. And what could be better? for one's life or sense of place in the universe. (laughs) This town. Hashtag this town. (laughs) When you're between dictator clients, you know. Uh, Arthur, you had, there was one you liked about, what, like milk or something? Yeah, it's from January 3rd, 2010. And uh, it's it's very silly, but I actually thought this, uh, the silliness of it was revealing about the way Hillary Clinton lives her life. It's to Monica, which is uh, someone who apparently is a personal assistant and it says, "I'd like you to work. Uh, I'd like to work with you to prepare a menu for Jason. Also, does he give me a monthly bill for the food he buys and prepares for me? Could you or he buy skim milk for me to have for my tea? Uh, can you give me times for two TV shows, Parks and Recreation and The Good Wife? I mean, I will say those are very good shows. They're very good shows. They're good shows, but yeah. who emails somebody to tell them what time a TV show comes on? Google it, man. <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted to defend the milk, though. Milk and tea, I was I was totally no. anti until no. I went to in England. And I was like, no. wow, actually, this is great. But this first sentence, she's saying, hey, who pays for my food? <laughs> Do you know who pays my chef? <laughs> or is it just like a Lanny Davis type person who's just for free sucking Mon- up? Monica, please call the valet from downstairs. <laughs> oh, it's it's a very upstairs downstairs oh, dynamic. Very, very. Please call the valet, man. That is <laughs> that's brutal. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, to some extent, there's there's the top level scandal problem where honesty, trustworthiness, all that stuff is is sort of called into question. But do you guys think that that upstairs downstairs dynamic also hurts her? I mean, I I kind of nah. would say that this this nah. makes her look a little more out of touch. Don't think so. I don't think so. People know this already. That mm. she's like real rich and out of touch. <laughs> <laughs> don't I mean, they? The, the the thing people care most about when it comes down to it is what her policies are and what she wants to do for the country. So I I, I don't think so. Um, is it funny? Is it fun to mock? Hell yes. But uh, in the end, I don't think it's going to cost her votes. I don't think people care about her policies. I think people know that she's rich and out of touch, but simultaneously are are just nostalgic for the 1990s. When her husband was president, she was in the White House, and we had, to that point, what was the longest expansion 
of the economy since World War II. And, so, and things were largely peaceful in the United States. There were, there were pockets of extreme conflict elsewhere in the world, but here everything was nice and quiet. Yeah, like vanilla ice. We had vanilla <laughs> ice. It was the vanilla ice decade. People want to get back to that. Well, speaking of rich and out of touch, so the, the Republican frontrunner, is uh, you guys may not have heard of him, but he's he's uh, actually pretty famous in the real estate business. Really? Uh, he's a billionaire named Donald Trump. Whoa! Uh, and somehow, uh, this incredibly wealthy man has captured the hearts of uh, poor white people in the United States who vote Republican. Because he's so out of touch that he's gone around in a loop, and now he's back in touch with people's butts. Exactly. Uh, so. We did a poll this week, uh, HuffPost commissioned it, which which asked uh, both Democratic and, and Republican voters um, whether they agreed with a certain policy position. Uh, and to, to one group, we'd say, this is this is President Obama's policy position. And to another, we'd say this is Donald Trump's policy position. Because even though Trump has said all these horribly racist things about immigrants and other people in the United States who are not white, um, he, he actually says a lot of things about Social Security being, you know, saving Social Security without cutting it that, uh, that, that the president agrees with. Um, and when you hear it's, it, the, 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 the really, really dramatic finding of the poll, I think, is that, is that when Republicans hear that something is an Obama policy, they don't like it. But when they hear that it's a Trump policy, exact same policy, they're far more likely to say that it's something that they support. I mean, numbers jump from like 20 percent to 50 percent approval uh, for you know, straightforwardly liberal policies. Like, let's let's protect Social Security without budget cuts. Uh, did, did that surprise you, Igor? On one hand, yes. On, on another, it, it really didn't. Um, considering that, you know, when we had Bush in office, uh, every Democrat and liberal was extremely upset about his you know, foreign policy, drones, uh, secrecy and all that. Obama comes in and uh, what do liberals do? They shrug at it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think it, it cuts both ways. Um, so but I, I think it does show to the extent to which Republican leaders especially have underestimated Trump um, and his appeal and, and really um, their coalition, their base. Mm-hmm. Uh, Social Security is not the best example, though, because it's so broadly popular to begin with. Mm-hmm. That the Trump effect was more modest, but you you got Republicans feeling happier about affirmative action <laughs> when it's put to them as like a Trump thing. That's insane. <laughs> I mean, the, the Iran deal too. I mean, the Iran deal. Do you agree with John Kerry or Donald Trump? Republicans come in like under twenty percent, saying that this is a good deal or they shouldn't be torn up on day one of the next presidency when Kerry says it. When Trump says it, it's it's like well over well over forty percent say that they agree with that. Listen, statement. Trump is a god. He is the Tom Brady of the twenty sixteen election. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's yeah. You're, Igor, you're totally yeah. right because that's his approach to everything. When a reporter really corners him and asks a question such as, what is your policy? How will you do it? His answer is, oh, it'll be great because I'm great. Because <laughs> he wins. Yeah. He wins. He's a how, winner. How will you build a wall? This is an actual one. How will you build a, a, like a 3,000-mile-long wall? And he's like, well, I built a tall building. <laughs> <laughs> he, he built many tall buildings, actually. He, yeah, with undocumented labor, which, which, which fits his exactly. plan to make the Mexicans pay for So it. there's no hypocrisy there. <laughs> Ever. Well, uh, Tom Brady and, uh, and Donald Trump actually know each other. There are a lot of photos of them sort of schmoozing together in public. Uh, and, and Donald Trump has been defending... Uh, 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 the, the Patriots quarterback against the, the deflate gate uh, controversy. Well, all, all he called it. He yeah. called that uh, the judge would reverse the order. 
All rich people know each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they just sort of hang out and fix the elections, and they then hang out to home. Yeah, yeah. They, they, ha- they ha- hang out at the country club, at the, the Trump golf course. Trump was right about Brady. This Brady story was stupid. It was dumb. Um, but I will say, the decision came down on a technicality, not technically whether he was guilty or not. The technicality was uh, better than a technicality. It was a technicality in the sense that they weren't saying whether the footballs had been deliberately inflated. Right. They were saying the NFL violated its workers' rights. Right. Which is uh, a very compelling reason for a judge to throw this out. So I, I was pleased with that. Listen, any decision against the NFL and Roger Goodell, I'm for. So Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> the NFL is essentially one of the clubs where rich people who know each other hang out. Oh, Roger, yeah. Roger Goodell will go home and cry in his big 30 million pile... Thirty million dollar pile of money now, and uh, he will have a great time. Yeah, I mean, he's thousand thread count silk pillow. <laughs> we have to be clear. You know, the NFL represents the owners in in the league, so they, they, that's Rod, all. Is, Roger yeah. Goodell is the agent of capital in football, so you know, re- people can say what they want about Tom Brady being a rich, out of touch quarterback, uh, but but he is actually on the labor side of this dispute. He works yeah. really hard. He's, <laughs> he's on really a, good. He's he is a, the common man. He's on a strange <laughs> diet when his parents come over. After they leave, they say, so where are we going to get dinner? Because <laughs> he feeds them, like, nuts and berries. That's <laughs> really, Tom Brady's really a hardworking man and a winner. Well, that's great, guys. I think that's, uh, I think that's all we have for this on Donald Trump. I do want to say before we go, uh, if you look at the way that his, his appeal has been presented to the, to the public, the, the media sort of looked at it and said, it's, it's, it's so hard to understand after all, of this, after all of this, you know, Tea Party stuff. The Republican Party has become so unpredictable. I don't think it's that unpredictable that somebody would turn against immigrants and support populist economic policies like on Social Security and stuff after an economic downturn. That seems like a pretty popular thing that's happening in other parts of the country. Uh, and you kind of see that in, in the, the various like refugee crises, which were also making headlines this week in, in Hungary and in, in Turkey. Yeah, it's just too bad, like the authoritarian figure who pulls these things together is a guy with a comb over instead of like a real buff guy. <laughs> I mean, they're all guys with comb overs. Right, right. Like, couldn't we get like a you know someone who's a little easier around the eyes? Nope, that's that. <laughs> if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. We're back. This is Arthur Delaney, and I'm joined once again by Zach Carter. Hi. And by Laura Bassett. Hello. And these are my colleagues. They're reporters at the Huffington Post. And fall is around the corner, which means we're going to look for some foliage, do some leaf peeping. And, read, read back issues of American Lawyer. And we're watching. Oh, yes. <laughs> and and, and uh, we'll get to that in a minute, Zach. But, but we're going to look for the leaves to turn their colors and for the government to shut down. No. Which we're always, wah, which wah. We're always wondering about this time of year. Because this is how fiscal years work. It's it's when when October comes around, the shutdown, <laughs> the shutdown fairy <laughs> puts a tooth under your pillow or something. Oh, and we got a, we have a we've had a we had a shutdown over Obamacare that Ted Cruz did for us a few years ago. We did not have a shutdown over Obamacare last year, and this year we have a different sort of shutdown that Laura is has done some reporting on and can tell us about. Right. Uh, there are some members of the Republican Party who would like to shut down the government over Planned Parenthood funding um, because of a series of videos that came out that show Planned Parenthood engaged in uh, donating fetal tissue for medical research, which Republicans believe is the sale of fetal body parts. Well, they're, what they're saying is uh, these videos show that the entire enterprise of abortion is actually just baby body part trafficking. Right. As if they harvest babies and 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 traffic them. As if that is the reason that abortions happen. Right. Yeah, what's crazy to me about the way that this has gotten, I mean, cuz this is still all the story is still all over Fox News all the time. People still talk about these videos and and speak of them as if it's just obvious that Planned Parenthood is engaged in criminal activity. I want to say criminal bacteria there, (laughs) but but like even the even the selectively edited video versions don't actually show Planned Parenthood even agreeing to any of these things. They explicitly turn people down in these conversations and say, "No, we don't want to do that. That sounds like we would be making money off of baby parts. This sounds like a bad idea." The goal of the videos, it seems to me, is to make people just think about abortion a lot. It's not unlike the big gross signs that abortion protesters will put up. And like, look, look at it. Look, see, think about it. It's exactly. It's like they caught doctors talking really frankly and bluntly about what everyone already knew abortion was. And they were hoping that it would inflame people enough. Um, but what's what's interesting about that and what I've found interesting this whole time is like, you know, for instance, there's the Charleston shooting. Right. And presidents and presidential candidates are always super careful to, like, wait until all the facts come out to make any kind of judgment. And the Charleston shooting happens and they're asking candidates like Jeb Bush and, you know, was this racially motivated? And they're like, well, whoa, whoa, let's wait and see, like, what mm-hmm. you know, all the facts. Um, and with these Planned Parenthood videos, there's investigations underway. Five investigations so far have come up with n- no wrongdoing by Planned Parenthood. The federal investigation hasn't come up with anything yet. And yet Republican candidates are declaring matter-of-factly that Planned Parenthood is selling babies. Now, Ted Cruz, the senator from Texas, is probably the foremost among these presidential candidates who's doing this. He Well, they're all doing it, but he's doing it too, and he's leading the shutdown effort. But, and he, right. Does, 
didn't you join a conference call with him where he's attempting to get more to spread awareness of the videos? And not just to spread awareness of the videos. Basically, he's trying to. Um, the the call was with a bunch of pastors, like thousands of pastors across the country, evangelical Christians, and he's trying to get them to preach from the pulpit uh, about Planned Parenthood to get public support for a shutdown. Basically, that's what he was saying on the call. He's like, tell your congregations to call their member of Congress and pressure them to insist on a government shutdown because he knows that if they have a standalone bill on defunding Planned Parenthood, Democrats will block it. And so the shutdown is the only way to actually do something that has teeth. Now, wait a second. Is he saying he wants a shutdown or is he saying he wants the defunding? He wants defunding attached to the must-pass budget bill. Um, and then he's saying if a shutdown happens because Obama vetoes the budget bill because it has Planned Parenthood defunding in it, then the shutdown will be Obama's fault. So he's frank about the idea that a, a, a government shutdown and all the associated collateral damage is worth it for this effort against Planned Parenthood. Yeah, he's saying that that it, huh. if the shutdown happens, it'll be Obama's fault and not his. Which is funny because he said that in 2013 when he shut down the federal government over Obamacare. And that's not what happened at all. The public blamed Republicans straightforwardly and they were really pissed off. And Republicans were in for just a terrible, terrible year public relations-wise until Obama bailed them out and, with, and with we the, bad, sub- uh, the bad goal out of Obamacare. subtracted about $24 billion from GDP. Over a, a two-week shutdown. Totally yeah. needless. And and also, I mean, it, 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 it people don't like to cry tears for uh, you know the the plight of federal employees, but these are people who go to work every day, you know, trying to do their job, you know, that that, that the country, you know, the country needs done. Which was why they have the jobs. And so when you tell people in these federal positions, you know, every year you might get furloughed without pay for a you know significant period of time, just just for no reason. Uh, it makes it harder to attract good people to to get the government to work well. Now, wait a second. We're talking about the possibility of this. Of course, it's a real possibility. I don't know how... I, I, th- I think it's less likely than it was in earlier years because right off the bat, the establishment Republican leaders are saying no. John Boehner called Ted Cruz a jackass. <laughs> Mitch McConnell <laughs> went on a TV station in Kentucky and said... It's not going to happen. Let me tell you how Congress works. You need enough votes. And then even if you have the votes, you need the president to not veto it. So forget it. We don't have the votes. We're not doing this. So shouldn't that mean the shutdown watch is less vigilant this year? I I don't think so, because I think this is what every I remember 2013. That's what everybody was saying in the the weeks and months leading up to what ultimately was a government shutdown. Well, no one's actually going to do this. And Mitch McConnell was saying, this is not smart. Don't do this. People, we were, the, the idea that the government was actually going to, to shut down seemed ludicrous. And then we got closer and closer to the, 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 the budget deadline. And then, boom, we actually shut down. I, I think as this gets closer, House Republicans, you know, <laughs> there's a really funny story in 2013 of uh, Ted Cruz, Cruz meeting with these, like, hardcore conservatives at Tortilla Coast, right? Why is that funny? Tortilla <laughs> Coast is a restaurant that's nearby. <laughs> yeah, but then one of the Republican leaders walked in. It was uh, Kevin McCarthy. He was like, hey, what is this guy from the Senate doing with all of these House oh, Republicans Oh, because tor- Tortilla Coast is on the House side. So <laughs> Ted Cruz went over there on their turf. He jumped the fence, you know? <laughs> 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 he, was, he was on the other side of the tennis court. 
and uh, and so uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy was just really pissed. Uh, and and so they're getting the, he's going to get the Tortilla Coast band back together. And you're already seeing stories in the Atlantic where people are being like, you know, we got to shut we got to shut down the government here over this, otherwise the party's doomed. I respectfully disagree with you, Zach. I don't think that I think that the issue is losing steam, not gaining steam, because mm. these videos keep coming out and keep getting increasingly ignored by everyone because these state investigations are happening and turning up nothing and it's sort of starting to get a little awkward and embarrassing for the Republican Party. <laughs> yes. And I think what's even more awkward and embarrassing for them is that after, when when Fury was at its highest, after the first couple of videos came out, um, the people ran a couple of polls and it showed that Planned Parenthood was still way more popular than any Republican candidate, than the NRA, than the Supreme Court, than President Obama, than Hillary Clinton. I mean, <laughs> people go to Planned Parenthood, they love it, they want it there. And so there's just not the public support for this, and Mitch McConnell knows that, and he's not going to die on that hill. Is that because people know you you get all these other services at Planned Parenthood aside from abortion? Yeah, it's because people, I mean, everybody knows people who go there for health care. Like, people go there for birth control. When if, if I'm in between jobs, that's where I would go for birth control. And and even even knowing that it's there to provide abortions, like, I feel like even people who are kind of like will call themselves pro-life, they want the option there. They don't yeah. want their option taken away, even if they're never going to use it, you know? Uh, and now federal... Funding for abortion is illegal. We have a, a Hyde Amendment in effect where the federal government does not subsidize abortion procedures, right? Right. So they're taking it to the next level. They're just going after the organization because, you know, abortions are, are a small right. part of what it does. Right. Defunding the organization doesn't even touch their abortion services. If I, if you want an abortion at Planned Parenthood, you have to pay for it yourself. Um, we're talking huh. about Title Ten family planning money, and we're talking about uh, Medicaid money, and all of that goes to birth control, cancer screenings, STD tests, non-abortion services. So really what they're doing is taking away women's ability to not get pregnant, which sort of uh, goes against their ultimate cause, right? Yeah. It's so, so weird that a, a, a cause based on a hoax would actually be totally misguided and practically pointless. So hopefully the leaves will turn colors this autumn. I guess the <laughs> government, spice lattes. the pumpkin spice lattes will return to Starbucks, and I guess the government will stay open. Before we're finished, no here's... way though, no way, no way. Let me let me get. It. I know we're trying to wrap, but no, no, no. But... I'm 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 getting to you, Zach. <laughs> I, we talked in the previous segment about whether Lanny Davis succeeded in getting Hillary Clinton to say something nice about him. Oh, that. that's right. His his uh, his really long email to her. So did you find out if, if she gave him a, a favorable quote? Yes, I did. Uh, I, it's, I tracked down this old issue of the American Lawyer magazine from 2010, and the quote did not make the article. There is no Hillary Clinton quote in the article. So if she did provide something, it was so lame that the reporter didn't put it in. Wow, um, the seasons are changing. But guys, what about the House? I mean, that, I know Mitch McConnell doesn't want to do this, but John Boehner, there are people who are saying, you know, there's going to be there's going to be a leadership fight over this. You got to get both chambers on board. I just feel like you guys, you guys th- are underestimating where the crazies are. I think we're going to just turn the page <laughs> as the leaves fall. <laughs> <laughs> I think the tilt of the Earth's axis will yield a different quality of light, and we'll see everything differently. Whoa, whoa. We'll see. <laughs> All right. Bye bye. And we're back. I'm Zach Carter, senior political economy reporter for the Huffington Post. Love saying that title. But who else is here? Uh, Hi, I'm Dana. I am a political reporter for the Huffington Post. I don't know if that's my official title, but I've Sounds like it is. Okay, that's my title. Do you have a last name, Dana? Oh, yes. It's Dana Liebelson. I'm Arthur Delaney. 
And what what do you do, Arthur? I'm a I just say reporter. Mm. It's simpler. Mm. Less than is what that means. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so Dana, uh, you cover a lot of really, um, frankly, horrifying stories. Uh, you did a big thing on children in prison a couple of months ago, and this week you had uh, you had sort of a follow up on 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 that, right? I did. So my original story was about a lawsuit that was filed by a bunch of inmates against the state of Michigan for how they were treated as children. Um, they had a bunch of horrific allegations, including uh, sexual assault by adult cellmates, uh, use of force, and things like that. So um, what happened last week? is that their case went to the Court of Appeals and the appeals court threw it out on a technicality. And what's it's a very interesting technicality. Basically what they decided is that the state's civil rights law does not apply to prisoners, which means it doesn't apply to uh, kids in prison. So I found that, you know, pretty surprising. It seems like many things are going wrong. Yeah, I mean, Arthur, if you... Wait, first of all, state civil rights law doesn't apply? So there's a great backstory to this. (laughs) That's what a civil rights law is. I thought civil rights... (laughs) I thought those were the big ones, like, in the Constitution. So, yeah, federal, federal civil rights laws applies to inmates. But Michigan has this really weird backstory. Basically, in the 90s... Uh, this group of women, female inmates, filed a lawsuit saying they were being sexually assaulted by male guards. State lost. They had to pay a ton of money, like $100 million. And uh, in response, a bunch of lawmakers passed an amendment to the civil rights law saying, oh, hey, this doesn't cover prisoners anymore. Because they basically never wanted to pay that much money ever again. So basically, because they were sexually assaulting prisoners and had to pay a lot of money, they passed a law saying... If we sexually assault prisoners in the future, we don't have to pay for it. Yeah, that's pretty much what happened. So, as you might imagine, a federal court found this unconstitutional in 2007. Oh, oh good. I was like, <laughs> is it just like this? Come on. But, <laughs> Goodness. But this particular case is in state court, and so the majority was like, hey, that federal law does not apply to us. Oh, uh, wait a What? I thought state courts had to listen to what federal courts said, right? Like district Technically, courts- it was a non-binding opinion, but... Uh, oh, those happen. Yes. So, basically, this is... Totally BS. This is just complete crap. But for now, that means that that there's at least a new legal hurdle for people looking for for justice in in Michigan. Yeah, it's weird. It's not necessarily new because this this amendment was passed in the late 90s, but it's been kind of reasserted. So now this case is going to go to the Michigan Supreme Court. So, you know, advocates sort of expect the Supreme Court will stand up and be like, hey, you can't just like cut out a group of people. Uh, There was a great dissenting opinion by one of the judges who was like, you might as well just cut out everyone who's African-American or everyone who has blue eyes. Like, this, there's no difference here. It doesn't, it just doesn't sound very, not Not only does it not sound all that constitutional, it doesn't even sound a habeas corpus-y. It just sounds mean. It just sounds, yeah. it sounds like, it sounds like you really couldn't come up with any reason <laughs> to be a jerk to these kids in prison. And so you just made something up and this was, and there was nothing good to make up. So this was the best they could do. Well, well Dana, what do they have as far as, like, arguments or justifications? So, basically, they filed a case in federal court and a case in state court. The state court deals with the state civil rights law. So they, you know, basically have to keep going down that avenue. The federal case is a little different. They might have more legs to stand on there. I don't know exactly what's going on with the federal case right now. But, um, yeah, so that's what's going on. It's not very heartening. It sucks. Um, But, you know, the the Michigan Department of Corrections put out a statement uh, 
sort of saying, hey, this proves that the merits of our case are, are right and all of these kids are kind of liars and things like that. So just want to set the record straight that this was not a ruling on the merits of the case. It was a ruling on the it was a technicality ruling. Well, it's nice to hear that this is happening. I mean, it's sort of rotten, but it's good perspective because at the surface level in national politics, you'd have the impression that criminal justice reform was this unstoppable force and that sooner, you know, we're, we're, we're having a reckoning with all these really unfair laws that put people in prison for unfair reasons. And but, for ridiculous lengths of time and all of that. But actually, <laughs> out there in the United States, there's this churn of crap beneath that surface that is, that is uh, not so great. I, I mean, I think the litigation tends to always go on for a really long time in these cases. But as we just saw in California this week, they're moving all these inmates out of solitary confinement now because of this, like, huge, long litigation settlement agreement. So that, you know, that was a case where, where inmates did prevail. You had another story this week about solitary confinement. Uh... Oh, yeah. There's a there's a great new report out that was put out by corrections officials and also Yale researchers that really kind of dug into exactly how many people are held in solitary confinement in the U.S. And those numbers have always been really hard to get. But I think because we had a correctional association participating, um, they were able to kind of survey. And so that's I think we're looking at up to 100,000 inmates were held in solitary in 2014. Is, is that enough? Do we need more? I think or, we need behind? more. Yeah, I think we should. Well, what was so are we still number one? <laughs> uh, what was kind of interesting about this report is that you know even this correctional association was like, "This is a grave problem, and we would like to see this stop." Um, correctional association here being a a group representing prisons. Yeah, it includes wow. it includes like um, heads of state corrections agencies and federal. It's it's very legitimate and it's coming from you know people who are in charge of prisons that sounds like an instance where the state officials do want to get ahead of the, the national politics because solitary confinement is something we we've, people have been learning is really cruel and unusual yeah i would say that it, it uh permanently damages your brain based on all of the scientific research that i've read um and it's especially harmful to kids that's not a good punishment and they do that to kids. Uh, well, that's awful. Uh, Dana, thanks for uh, keeping us filled in on uh, how rancid the world is sometimes. I know. You have to give me, like, my own depressing news segment. <laughs> or you could have a new title. <laughs> Senior rancid correspondent. Yeah. <laughs> you also have to talk about old punk bands. <laughs> okay. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Hey there, listener of this podcast. I've got a quick little thing I'd love to chat with you about. Are you a regular So That Happened listener? Well, let us know. Send me an electronic communication with your electronic communicating devices at so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Tell us what you think of the show, what we're messing up, and who you'd like to hear more from or more about. Okay, back to the program. We're back. This is Arthur Delaney, and I'm in the office of U.S. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack. Secretary Vilsack, thank you for joining us. Arthur, it's good to be with you. So, uh, you've been making a lot of noise this week about the looming expiration of the law that authorizes uh, the National School Lunch Program. And what does that mean that at the end of the month this law expires? 
Well, it means that Congress has not given us the opportunity for certainty about what the program will be over the next five years. Look, this is a very important program, not just for the children of America, but for the entire country. And I say that because the reality is that even today, 76% of American children come to school often hungry. Hungry kids may not be the learners that they were intended to be, so it's important for us to continue to make a commitment, for example, to school breakfast programs. That helped. That would happen with a reauthorization of the law. But, but Secretary Vilsack, uh, so these reauthorizations are done for periods of five years, uh, and that would give you a long amount of certainty, but it's not like the school lunches are going to vanish if they don't do it. It'll stay on autopilot. It, it, that's accurate, but it's, it will be helpful to have this work done now uh, by an administration that understands and appreciates the significance of these nutrition uh, programs relative to economic security, health care costs, and national security, as well as educational achievement. So Republicans are working on this. They haven't unveiled their bill, but they will this month, and they've talked about wanting to reduce regulatory burdens. Do you have any idea what they might be looking at? Well, some Republican members of Congress have expressed concerns about the standards, uh, but I think they are doing so based on the belief that a majority of uh, parents, a majority of students, a majority of school administrators are not supportive of these standards, when in fact that's not the case. Ninety-five percent of American schools have embraced uh, the standards and are currently certified as meeting the standards. Uh, We know that 90% of the American public believes that having national nutrition standards is a good idea. We know that over 70% of parents support the standards. We know that elementary school students, 63%, think these these meals are are good. Uh, We know that even high school kids have expressed an interest in these meals, uh, and a large percentage of them are supportive of the program. So we want to continue it. Well, one of the regulations that has been phased in in the last five years is that all the grains served in these meals are whole grains. Well, 50% of what's served uh, has to be whole grains today, and within a couple of years, 100%. That's correct. And and this is something that the School Nutrition Association, which is uh, basically a a lobbying group for the people making and, and serving this food, they're saying, let's not go to, let's not do 100% whole grain. Kids don't like it because we're talking about whole grain pasta, whole grain pizza crust, whole grain quesadillas. I don't eat that stuff. Uh, <laughs> do you? I mean, what? Well, I, I do, but the, the point of this is that, that we were uh, aware of concerns specifically about pasta, and we provided uh, flexibility uh, to allow the food processing industry more time. Yeah. But we also know that there are a number of products that are whole grains that essentially have been embraced by students at schools, uh, from tortillas uh, to uh, burritos uh, to a variety of other uh, pasta products that are being improved and are getting in a better place. So we've provided additional time, additional flexibility. What we don't want to see is a rolling back or a a reversal of the progress that's been made. We don't want to see uh, uh, basically an unwillingness uh, to, uh, to embrace uh, more nutritiously enriched and dense foods because experts have told us that the foods that were being produced before the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act was enacted and implemented had too much sodium, too much sugar, and too much fat, and not enough fruits and vegetables, not enough whole, wheat, uh, whole grains, and not enough low-fat dairy. So we obviously want to continue to do what's right for our kids. Well, I read that the whole wheat pasta was kind of falling apart when they would try to make it because it's not 
That was true a year or so ago. It's not necessarily true today. Food processing folks have stepped up, have for reformulated uh, items, and are now in a better position to provide uh, tasty uh, uh, opportunities for young young people with the whole grains. In fact, we have a series of recipes uh, we've we've worked on moving chefs into schools to assist schools. We've worked with school equipment grants. We've even had a program where we're taking uh, schools that are struggling uh, with these standards and, and pairing them up with similarly situated succeeding schools and allowing a mentoring relationship to allow those struggling schools to get in a better place. So there's higher uptake, or you know, the polls show more approval of uh, the whole grain and, and the standards in general among younger kids. And is it the USDA's hope that as those kids age, acceptance will be brought in on the kids who are in high school right now who don't like it as much will be out of the system and, uh, you know, it, people will be less familiar with the, again, the, uh, the, the white flower tortilla. Again, I think uh, a majority of high school students, even a majority of high school students are in favor of these standards. But having said that... Well, it was I, 60%. Well, it was 63% of elementary school kids. There were additional studies that showed uh, a, a high acceptance rate among uh, high school kids uh, in terms of, of these meals. But the point of this is that this isn't just... Uh, the school lunch and school breakfast program in isolation. This is also part of the administration's effort to improve the women and infant children program with uh, a greater mix of fruits and vegetables, a way in which we're working with SNAP families to understand uh, nutritional choices, the snack uh, snacks that are sold in school sending a consistent message, the My Plate initiative, even our effort at food waste to reduce food waste, all designed to create a generation of folks uh, who understand what's best for them in terms of the choices that they make, and they have the ability to make the nutritious choice the easy choice. That's what we're about. Uh, Secretary Vilsack, obesity risen a lot. Uh, most people are overweight or obese right now, but in the last few years, they're saying it, it, you know, it may have uh, peaked. And, and do, do you think that this law deserves some credit for that, or... Is it, is it a broader trend? Well, I think it's a combination. Uh, I think the work we've done with uh, our Women, Infants, Children program has been helpful. Uh, I think the focus and attention the First Lady's brought to calories in and calories out with her Let's Move initiative, I think what we've done in the school lunch and school breakfast program, all of that is having a cumulative effect and impact in creating sensitivity uh, on the part of Americans. And I think we're beginning to see uh, plateauing of those obesity rates. And I think over time, we'll see a significant reduction, as we have in terms of where this was 60 years ago or so, or 70 years ago, when Harry Truman established the school lunch program. He did it because he was concerned that people weren't consuming enough calories. Yeah. So we put together these school meal programs now. Obviously, the problem is the opposite. I think we will be making the adjustments, and I think we'll be a healthier, happier, more productive uh, country uh, in the future, in part because of the work we're doing on nutrition. All right, Secretary Vilsack, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And we're back. This is Arthur Delaney, and I'm joined by Zach Carter. Hi. And by Akbar Ahmed. Hi. And these guys are politics reporters. We all are politics reporters it's at amazing. the Huffington Post. And, and somehow we got on this politics podcast for the Huffington Post. In the Huffington Post offices. And what it's we're going to do now is jam on the Iran deal, which this week was just completely slam dunk done with. It's yes. Obama broke the backboard. Uh, it was it was kind of tasteless, really. The glass <laughs> the glass shattered, and and it was over. 
we've all kind of known it. This is the week of the victory dance in the White House. Now, wait a minute. Akbar, I didn't think we knew it. I thought this was something where uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader, would lead Republicans to victory because this was, uh, you you remember during the campaign, people like Tom Cotton were all about this and how Barack Obama was going to let Iran have a nuclear bomb that they would use to blow up Israel. I I thought there was some tension and uncertainty about when we would know and if we would know if, if President Obama would get his way. I think once the deal happened, uh, which was about mid-July, and Sanders had come out in favor of it around the end of July, people sort of thought it was a fait accompli. I think the Republicans would have liked to believe August 3rd that people went to their representatives and said, oh, my God, how dare you vote on this? It didn't work. Uh-huh. Funnily enough, like, President Obama has had the only good August recess of his presidency, so that's been <laughs> nice for him. So <laughs> the nice August recess has been magical to Republicans, especially in 2010, and that was the, uh, the Tea Party wave that gave us Scott Brown, <laughs> which was ultimately terrific. It was a great gift for political reporters. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe, I mean, policy-wise, it led to some, some dysfunction. Akbar, what happened uh, this week? When did we get over the hurdle? And what is that hurdle? So the big hurdle, and this is what all these deal opponents, um, there's APAC, there's a lot of groups that are linked to Israel and also to Sunni Gulf Arab states that don't like Iran, were running a lot of ads to pressure legislators. You needed, for the Republicans to get their plan through, to have two-thirds of both the House and the Senate support a resolution of disapproval against the deal. So, so Republicans have a bill that, that yeah. says no. Right. So Republicans have this bill that says no. They're going to pass it because Republicans are in the majority in the House and in the Senate. That's probably going to happen. And then President Obama has said, I hate you. I'm going to veto this. You suck. And it goes back to the Hill, at which point... Oh, was that in the pool report? You know, it was there. He told me. Um, It was a a chat on the side. Um, At which point it goes back to the Hill. And to sustain an override of a presidential veto like that, you need two-thirds of both houses, which is quite a ridiculous number. So we we jump from the familiar 60-vote threshold to get past the filibuster all the way to a 67-vote threshold in, in the Senate. Right. In order to say no, no to the president. Right. And they didn't get there. That's the thing that happened this week that's important is that there were now 34 Senate Democrats. Uh, they, they crossed the 34-vote threshold. Uh, I believe the final senator to come forward and say no to no uh, and say yes to Obama and the Iran deal it was, uh, was Senator Barbara Mikulski, who is from, from Maryland. Whose initials, nicely enough, spell out BAM. So we were able on HuffingtonPost.com <laughs> to have a splash headline that said BAM. Barbara Mikulski became... A historic vote. And that's why it's really interesting. A lot of people have been talking about why was it Mikulski? One big reason is she doesn't have to run for re-election. So, like, this is likely going to be an issue a year down the line when we're seeing Senate re-elections for some of these Democrats. And, and what, make, what makes it such a vulnerable issue in particular for her? Well, it's not a vulnerable issue. For no, her. I mean, I mean, if she had been running, um, why would it? Why would that have been problematic for her to support the the deal? I think one reason is we don't know where the deal is going to be in a year, and the Obama administration says this: we don't know if Iran is going to cheat in the next three months, six months, nine months. So it's quite likely that by election season next year, there's again renewed controversy over this. And if the deal is successful, I mean, it's it's a deal that has you know like ten year timelines in place. So. If things go well for four years, five years, six years, there's a sense in which people who support the deal can say, look, we 
you know, Iran did not get a nuclear weapon for that period of time. That is that is a win. But whenever you know, if something goes long over the wrong over the course of a decade, that's always an opportunity for someone for an opponent to say, see, look, I told you bad deal. You're weak. And uh, invading Iraq was a good idea in 2003. It's not like this won't have been one of the most consequential foreign policy decisions of uh, like a generation. Right. And it also definitely affects people's future in the Democratic Party. I mean, we still haven't seen any comment from Senator Cory Booker, who's someone who definitely wants a future in the Democratic Party, but we don't know where he stands on this yet. Um, and the Middle East is going to be ugly for a long time, right? It's not, it's not like whatever the United States does in Iran, whatever it does in Syria, things are going to be ugly and violent there for a long period of time. And that opens anybody who supports any diplomatic position uh, open, open to criticism uh, from vulnerable to criticism. And, and you know, some, some of it fair, some of it not fair, uh, but, but certainly to cheap criticism. So, you know, you, you, you look, I think a lot of these politicians like Cory Booker look at what happened to Hillary Clinton after she voted for the invasion of Iraq in 2003, which at the time was the like thing that all the Democrats were doing. Everybody was cool with invading Iraq, uh, except like actual Democrats in the United States. But in Congress, they were in favor of it. And then like within six months, it's like, oh, crap, that was a bad vote. That's going to hurt me politically. Uh, people like Barbara Mikulski who are unveiling their positions, I guess, you know, everyone after Mikulski will be less momentous, but have they really not made up their minds? Or is it is are they just trying to have the most calculated and careful presentation. Some senators really haven't made up their minds because you have to remember, and the White House is big on saying this, Congress was the one that put the sanctions on Iran that brought them to the table. Congress has always been more skeptical. Part of that, yeah, is is lobbying by pro-Israel groups and anti-Iran groups, but legitimately many members of Congress don't trust Iran. This is not a great regime. This is a regime that kills people and is fomenting civil wars. Yeah, they're not our best friend at all. No, and and this deal isn't saying Iran is anyone's best friend. So I, I spoke with a lot of congressional staffers who said, legitimately our representatives are undecided. They don't know whether this is enough or goes far enough. That said, there's never before in history been such an intrusive inspections regime that any government has ever signed up to. Now, and it's, a, it's a, a pluralistic agreement, right? It's not just the United States and Iran. There are a lot of other players involved internationally yes. who basically want to see the, the sanctions that we, the United States has placed on Iran lifted. And the U.S. really can't. There's, the supporters of the deal have, have argued, at least, and I think persuasively, that there's no chance of getting the same people t- together to, to sustain the sanctions regime uh, now this, this agreement has been, has been put on the table. Right. So once the president has crossed the threshold of support he needs in the Senate to sustain his veto should they go through with this resolution of disapproval. Is that the end or are they now lobbying for more or for something else? They are lobbying for more and that'll be the thing to definitely keep an eye on because by September, I think it's 17th or 18th, Congress has to decide what they want to do on this because that's two months out from the deal. But there was a proposal in June to slam more sanctions on Iran. And basically what people who hate Iran are doing, Bob Menendez is a big part of this, is put forward sanctions that are just like the nuclear sanctions, but have different reasons for them. So just to tank any diplomacy with Iran on the basis of terrorism or support for Hezbollah, whatever it is, and take it away from the nuclear issue. And if they gain momentum and get more support, uh, I guess it all has to come from within the Democratic Party. Does that change the politics of it if, if they have you know a, a greater number of supporters, fewer people being singled out? Or is it basically going to be locked like this? I think it changes the politics of it, uh, certainly over the, the, you know, the, the, the remainder of the 2016 race. Um, I mean, if you look right now, the, the, the difference between avoiding 
of, you know, sustaining a, a, a veto, right, making sure that the president can keep this deal. And having Congress never actually even vote mm. on a bill to say they disapprove of it, because if they can get to if they can get to 40 Democrats, Mitch McConnell won't put a bill on the floor that he knows is going to go down. So if, if you never even get to that to that vote, uh, I, I think that ends up showing sort of a, a core strength, the, the core strength of the Democratic Party. It makes it very clear this is the this is the standard position of the Democratic Party. And you I think you will see, particularly in the presidential race, the rhetoric will be much more you know, from whoever the Democratic nominee is currently, Hillary Clinton, who has been kind of all over the place on foreign policy over her career, but certainly much more hawkish than Obama uh, during during her career. Um, I think it puts a lot of pressure on her to say, you know, this this is the deal. This is the best thing that we could have done. She's going to want to defend that. And that will become sort of part of the Democratic Party's pl- platform in 2016. And on, I think Hillary has been really interesting on this because she's given a full-throated endorsement. Hillary could have done what sort of a lot of Democrats have done, which is pussyfoot about this and said... I still have many concerns about Iran. Hillary said, I think this is the best deal they're going to get. This is great. I totally endorse it. Of course, she also said, I will call Bibi Netanyahu two seconds, within two seconds of me in the Oval Office. But she had to say that. <laughs> I mean, but, we'll, but we'll see where her position gets once there's a, a general election. You know, right now she's facing a much stronger than I think people expected challenge in the primary from Bernie Sanders on her left. Uh, so she, she has incentives to say things that liberal, the liberal wing of the party uh, agrees with. I will just also say it's important to think about politics, not just in Washington, but in Tehran. They have parliamentary elections coming up prior to the American presidential election. And they are watching this really closely. Millions of people this week watched John Kerry give a speech on the deal. And in Iran, we need to see, just as we need to see Democrats rallying behind the president on this for this deal to work, we need to see people rallying behind the reformists who are in power in Iran. The question is whether that'll happen. All right. Akbar Ahmed, Zach Carter, we're going to leave it there. Thanks so much. Thank you. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced and edited by Adriana Ucero and Peter James Callahan with technical direction from Brad Shannon and assistance from Christine Canetta. This week, we were joined by Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack and HuffPost reporters Akbar Ahmed, Laura Bassett, Igor Bobich, Arthur Delaney, and Dana Liebelson. So That Happened is available on iTunes. Check us out at iTunes.com slash Panoply or by searching for So That Happened on iTunes or Stitcher. While you're at it, check out the Huffington Post's whole family of podcasts. Subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to SoThatHappened at HuffingtonPost.com. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Zach Carter, and we miss you already. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,